edition of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summer Podcast. In this series, I'll be joined by highly esteemed academics and industry leaders to discuss themes and topics pertaining to each of the crisis simulations that our 70 delegates in September are eagerly waiting to tackle. This episode is geared towards discussions around cybersecurity and foreign experience and Australian intelligence. To discuss this, I'm honoured to be joined by two pioneers in their respective fields of cybersecurity, foreign interference and intelligence, Catherine Manstead and John Black. Catherine Manstead is a Senior Advisor for Public Policy at the National Security College here at the ANU. Manstead is a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Security and Democracy at the General Marshall Fund of the United States and the Harvard Kennedy School's Welfare Center for Science and International Affairs. Manstead's considerable breadth of knowledge and research spans including the effects of information technology in modern day democracy, new age technologies in the cybersecurity sphere, as well as foreign interference. Pioneering these fields of research, Catherine has gone to become a leading academic both in Australia and internationally. Catherine, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. John is a professor of international security and intelligence studies here at the ANU and the former head of strategic and defense and studies center at the ANU. John is a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy, a fellow of the Royal Society of New South Wales, a member of the Australian Army General Editorial Board, and the first Australian recipient of a US Department of Defense Minerva Research Initiative grant examining great power contestation in Southeast Asia. Extensive experience in the field of intelligence as a principal intelligence staff officer for the Australian Infantry Brigade, deployed to East Timor in September 1999, and an intelligence exchange officer at Washington, D.C. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me with you, Jack. Great to be with you. It's kind of one of those start things off a little bit broad to both of you. I'll start with you, John, first. Can you give a quick synopsis as to what you think foreign interference, cybersecurity, and all that, like a broad definition of what that means today? So... They're two separate issues. Um, cyber security is uh, the security of information systems that have that's emerged really in the last few decades uh, with the emergence of the internet and the hyper connectivity of our systems um, as a result of the emergence of digital technology, the ones and zeros that uh, has transformed our lives. Uh, so the transformative effect of the, the internet and the web of uh, technology has uh, vulnerabilities that need protection and they are captured best in half of the motto of the Australian Signals Directorate, which the first half is to reveal their secrets and the second half is to protect our own. And essentially protecting our own has become a major industry because we have now made ourselves, we've gone from being web enabled to web dependent and in so doing becoming web vulnerable. Mm. Uh, and that vulnerability now is on an industrial scale. Uh, so that's where I see cybersecurity is why that's featured so prominently and why, in one sense, I guess, foreign interference is conflated with cybersecurity is because the, the web enabling of uh, intrusion has been uh, something that has transformed the way foreign powers and foreign entities can reach out and touch us from afar uh, in our own homes uh, and our own businesses and our in industries and academic institutions and the like. So foreign interference is something that uh, I wrote about as an, you know, a scholar writing about ASIO uh, in the history, official history of ASIO. Uh, back in the analog days, mm. uh, you know, when it wasn't ones and zeros, <laughs> but it was about mandrolic, handrolic, uh, you know, operations of seeking to influence and coerce and persuade and maybe blackmail. Uh, those days uh, are still around, I guess, in one level, on one level, 
but they are being complemented by this whole new universe of uh, the cyber domain, which is making it uh, something that is much more complicated and difficult to monitor and track down. But at the same time, it's generated a whole legislative backlash, which we're going to talk about. And Catherine, what about yourself? What do you think about those two definitions? No, well, I very much agree. And I do think it's a great point when thinking about these types of topics always to start with definitions. So you're on the same page. I suppose in terms of cybersecurity, the way I think about it is in terms of something called the CIA triad. Um, not the CIA that you might be thinking, but um, an acronym uh, to denote that when you're talking about cybersecurity, you're trying to protect three things. Um, or if you're the adversary, potentially degrade three things. The first being the confidentiality of systems and data. The second I being the integrity of systems and data so that the data represents what you think it does and the system does what you think it should. And the final one, availability. So when you need the data or the system, you have access to it. That is one distinct area of security, foreign interference, really is on a different plane. As John alluded to, yeah, foreign interference can have a cyber dimension. It can be cyber enabled, um, but it doesn't have to be. Um, And often, actually, like most things in the modern world today, it's a kind of a vicious blend of both offline and online. And that's sometimes where we find as policymakers or as operators, it's the most difficult to respond because nothing is purely offline anymore, but nothing's also purely online. Um, it's worth going to first principles of definitions in terms of how the Australian government defines foreign interference. It tends to focus on activities that are coercive, covert, corrupting or deceptive um, and are in some way prejudicial to our national security. Um, and I think it's also worth then um, introducing another definition, which is foreign influence, which is a little bit different or quite different to foreign interference. In Australia, we say that foreign interference is unlawful, um, but we say that foreign influence, the idea that foreign powers, governments, corporations, etc., will try and influence Australia's politics and diplomacy is something that is normal and welcome. Um, But still, sometimes we also need to apply scrutiny to it to make sure that it's done in a way that is transparent um, and fair. On that sort of idea about foreign interference and foreign influence as well, what sort of threat does foreign interference and even foreign influence potentially have on a nation and on its political integrity, economic integrity, et cetera, et cetera? It's worth putting in historical perspective the place of foreign interference and I think there are many examples across the Western world and elsewhere of attempts during the Cold War of politicians to be co-opted to serve the interests of foreign powers and the Soviet Union was a master at this. Uh, and there are a number of writers who've written of uh, foreign influence and interference in the United States, the United Kingdom, and myself, amongst others, have contributed to that in the context of Australia. The idea that that would end with the end of the Cold War seemed like a lovely idea back mm. in the day, at the, the commencement of the so-called unipolar moment when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union imploded, but as we know, the you know a new equi- equilibrium emerged, which saw powers looking to exert influence much like they had before, 
but capitalizing on modern opportunities and uh, technologies as well. And so that manifested itself probably most clearly uh, with the events leading up to the a push for legislative change relating to foreign interference uh, in the last few years. And that was, you know, the most public, most prominent example of that was the Sam Dastyari affair, uh, which we could talk about more. Yeah, I always think it's interesting when dealing with questions like cybersecurity or foreign interference to think about what's old and what's new, because often when it comes to things that touch technology, I think there's a tendency for us to think that the entire issue is something that's new and that we need to come up with completely new solutions and that no one smart has thought about this before. But in terms of cybersecurity, the CIA, things I was talking about before, the notion of protecting your information or potentially degrading your adversary's information is not new. We've been doing that since antiquity. It's just cyber has changed the vector. In terms of foreign interference, mm. absolutely, it was um, something that was very common during the Cold War, but it went back before then. The kind of Pericles, who, who gave his oration, which is famously recorded in Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian Wars, talks about the way in which Athens responded to potential foreign interference, in that case by not being worried about foreign interference, by throwing open the gates of Athens to the world and having resilient um, citizenry who would be able to push back against foreign interference, although, of course, Thucydides didn't use those precise terms, um, but a, an informed and resilient citizenry who could push back. Fast forward a couple of centuries and George Washington was talking about foreign interference in his final address to the US people when he was retiring as um, president. He spoke about foreign interference as being, quote, um, one of the most baneful woes of a Republican government. And he was genuinely concerned um, that the US Republic experiment would come undone as a result of foreign interference. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the US for so many years after Washington pursued a policy of isolationism. They didn't want to get uh, messed up in other countries' uh, fights or problems uh, because they thought that that would encourage those countries to try and influence the American democratic project at home. Um, so yes, of course, there are a lot of new things here and the, the, the introduction of cyber, of social media, um, of, of all of these things makes the foreign interference and the cyber challenges more complex at greater scale, at greater pace. But there are also things that we've been grappling with uh, for centuries. Yeah. So with uh, that example that you just gave, Catherine, about America um, not getting involved in world wars because they're worried about, you know, external influences and stuff like that. Could it be argued for both of you that, in essence, over the last couple of decades, this ever-globalized world of expansion, globalization, and in the cyber realm as well, this huge connectedness between nations, between worlds, between individuals as well. Do you think that's heightened this idea of foreign interference, or do you think it's just changed the domain and the the idea about it completely or what, what do you guys think i might start just i mean the idea of you know nationalism was accused as being the a major contributor to the outbreak of world wars um and uh we kind of that kind of if you follow the philip bobbitt line of reasoning was a, a a kind of existential challenge that continued through till the end of the cold war and then we saw the emergence of a kind of the idea of globalization as being something we're all part of after the end of the, the uh, end of the cold war we are all the beneficiaries we're all able to share in 
free market economics and liberal liberal democracy and you know let's bring china in to the world trade organization because that's going to be the way to open the door you know free market economics is going to be the precursor to liberalization politically uh and we can all sing kumbaya uh and of course that's not quite how things have transpired. It's, mm. And of course, just thinking about things in Australia's context, we have gone from, you know, only 18 months ago being incredibly connected physically, not just via the internet, but by being able to travel everywhere. Um, you know, global air travel until 18 months ago was at an all-time high. Airports were being built, new air, you know, airports were bursting at the seams because people were traveling everywhere. And the idea of not being connected, the, the idea of being held back from being able to visit somewhere just seemed antique. It seemed completely anachronistic. And, of course, what we've seen in the last 18 months is a revisiting of nationalism, a revisiting of localism, a revisiting of hard borders, mm. and uh, the notions of of separateness and of local identity just completely like some kind of uh, you know, shock, you know, jack-in-the-box springing out in surprise and catching us all flat-footed mm. uh, to demonstrate kind of the some of the primal instincts of fear and security and about protecting our own that mm. comes when when an existential threat emerges. I think another interesting angle from what you were just saying, Jack, is that this not just the scale of foreign interference and and cyber interference has changed, but also the who is affected by these issues. So the previous examples that we have been talking about, Often those who were the targets of foreign interference um, or indeed even those engaging in foreign interference themselves, it was a relatively elite game or at least a narrow game. To close on a human target for foreign interference would potentially require a huge amount of groundwork, of infiltration of a particular group. You'd need to be very targeted about which group you'd go after. But now foreign interference has gone from something that's more of the game of elites, let's influence this key influencer or this key politician, to something where you can potentially influence or interfere with entire populations or with very segmented parts of that population, ordinary citizens, businesses across an entire society, an entire economy. The most obvious example of that is something like a social media interference campaign where you can affect voters at large potentially. Now, that's something we never had to grapple with in the past and that's something where technology but also globalisation and interconnectedness has completely changed the game. The other sub-point, though, to that is it's not just globalisation. The twin trend, I think, that's important to point out is privatisation, particularly in Western countries. So previously your big broadcasters, your telcos, they were state-owned um, and they acted often in the national interest. Now the biggest um, information platforms are global companies like Google, Facebook, but also WeChat coming out of China. They're privatised and then they're not necessarily acting for the national interest, they're acting for profit. And they're platforms that provide um, the aperture for foreign interference. Again, I think that's a bit of a game changer because it means the regulatory responses and the policy responses are going to have to be different when you're engaging with a lot of the, the collateral damage or a lot of the, the pathways for foreign interference are outside government and they're controlled by the private sector. I'd just add on that that uh, while a lot of them are controlled by the private sector, a lot of them on the Chinese side are not. 
they're actually under Chinese government influence, WeChat for instance. Um, and it's not a level playing field we're talking about here. We've got the Great Firewall of China behind which Twitter doesn't operate, Facebook doesn't operate, uh, and yet the China's pre China's presence on Twitter and Facebook is, you know, startling. So I think there's a couple of sides there. There's another side to this too, which is that the corporatization or the commercialization of some of these institutions has left us vulnerable in part because some of these companies are actually operating in the Kumbaya era of globalization, if you like, setting up Google and Boeing or, or any major corporation across national borders. Uh, it didn't matter because you just worked on just-in-time principles. You know, delivery could be time to meet the, exactly the, the deadlines required. And you weren't thinking about political interference. You weren't thinking about being blackmailed uh, over market access or political control by having part of your business cycle operating behind an, an, the authoritarian firewall of, of the PRC. And that is a game changer. That's something that's caught countries of the West completely flat-footed. We were not, we just didn't see this coming. We should have, but we didn't see it coming. And so this all this foreign interference talk is is really reflecting the fact that we've let our guard down. We've, we've as Catherine's pointed to, these institutions that were largely responsive to state direction are no longer uh, in that position. In fact, don't care about the state so much because they've got other stakeholders and they've got other uh, profit motives and profit centres that make us look pretty inconsequential and therefore they're quite prepared to ignore our advice and the way it's very interesting, mm. you know, just how Facebook pushed back against Australia and the Australian government earlier this year. It's yeah. like, wow. You know, uh, now that, that's it's more than one dimension to that equation. We know because they they ended up backing down a little bit, uh, but it speaks to a degree of powerlessness of the state in in the face of this, uh, of the uh, at least of Western states in the face of this pretty relentless uh, approach that, in terms of what's happening on the other side of the Great Firewall, is much more orchestrated, much more directed, far less laissez-faire, far less market driven. If I could just jump in there. I think one of the interesting concepts to reflect on is the notion of resilience, right? That's the topic du jour at the moment in national security circles. And to John's point, companies built on a just-in-time model, built to deliver shareholder value, built for efficiency. They're, they're all great things, by the way, but that's not necessarily always doesn't always come with resilience and redundancy, which is the place that you need to be in when you're in a hyper-competitive geopolitical environment. And also, just riffing on what John was talking about, it's really difficult for individual companies to price in the risks of both cyber um, problems and foreign interference problems. Like, how do you price that in to an economy? And so, so the cybersecurity discussion is a bit more mature, so it's actually interesting to start there, we are still grappling with the fact that it's often not in companies' interests to be cyber resilient, to protect their systems from espionage, for instance, because the costs of espionage are not always really clear and able to be factored in. So just recently, despite the fact that cyber has been a big problem for decades now, just recently the Department of Home Affairs put out a new consultation paper on a range of proposals for market incentives to improve cybersecurity, recognising that in some sense we have a bit of a collective action problem because the costs of cybersecurity 
um, or lack thereof, are not always effectively priced in to economic activity. You could say the same thing for foreign interference. Companies, and to an extent rightly so, aren't focused a lot of the time on this because it, it's not a issue that, that is going to be a profit winner. It's something that is a lot more diffuse, a lot more nebulous, and needs a much potentially a bit more of a steer from government to, to price in that that cost better. Yeah, it sounds it sounds as though topics and themes from both of those sort of sentiments is coming from the idea of the evolution of this whole idea of foreign interference and cybersecurity in recent decades and all that legislation, for example, like you tried to touch on earlier is struggling to keep up with this ever-changing domain that is constantly changing at a faster pace than we can even comprehend almost. And it sounds like that's extended more towards, I thought it was just, you know, general just legislation and, you know, individuals and stuff, sounding more coming towards the economic side, political side as well. It's it's all these sort of different factors of a, of a society struggling to keep up and protect itself from this ever-changing domain. So moving on, and I also want to talk about this sort of idea of evolution, but more geared towards this idea of espionage as well. For you, John, especially, how do you feel espionage has evolved over the past decades? Has it Was it ever an acceptable level of espionage? Was it ever like accepted from, from states? Because from, from my understanding, my perspective is this idea of espionage and foreign interference is something that you know, no state tolerates anymore. Even if you look at, for example, the Israel-Palestine, Israel's physical sort of dispute of Palestine's hacking and all that, that shows that this sheer limited level of tolerance almost. What do, what do you think? Do you, do you think it's ever was ever like sort of acceptable at one stage? Everybody loves a good set of double standards, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when it comes to espionage, you know, some it's been described you know, perhaps a little bit facetiously as the second oldest profession. Mm. Um, it's, in other words, it's age old. It goes back to the human condition mm. about wanting to snoop in on what others are thinking and, think and doing and maybe gaining an advantage by doing so. Now, back in the analog era, mm. you know, pre-digital, pre-web, uh, back in the last century, which you know, I'm a I'm a dinosaur <laughs> legacy thereof, uh, <laughs> much more comfortable in the analog era than the digital <laughs> one. <laughs> um, you know, in the good old days back then, it was it was much more about human intelligence, mm. um, and and signals intelligence was a definitely a part of it. But you, it was you know, having worked on a signals intelligence history and a human intelligence history, I kind of I've had a bit of fun playing with that. Uh, you know, the, where the balance lies, but, you know, the yin and yang of intelligence collection, if you like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but what we've seen is espionage is, you know, it's what states do. They do it to gain advantage, to stay abreast of, of an, a, a potential adversary's capabilities and their likely intentions, and it's completely understandable and it's widely recognised as a part of statecraft. Uh, so to you know feign ind indignation when when we we uncover it or when it is uncovered is a little bit you know uh, a little bit two-faced in my not so humble opinion <laughs> I'm joking there uh, <laughs> but essentially it's been ongoing what's happened though is that while once upon a time uh, the signals domain the signals intelligence domain it was still in the analog era you know so you were listening to radio waves mm. or telegraphy and and you were monitoring stuff like that it's proliferated now. It's yep. just it's just on such a gargantuan scale 
Um, and it's about ones and zeros now more than anything. It's blended into the cyberspace, mm. you know, and that's why it's been hard for us to get our heads around what on earth's going on because it's it's this old tradecraft, if you like, but in a whole new d- dimension, uh, and it's and it's super enabled. What's on your computer? What's on your phone? Uh, it becomes part of what can be collected. And the other th- interesting thing is. With AI, artificial intelligence, and in a really the, the the emerging field of quantum computing, this is an analog guy speaking here. Remember, Jack. So <laughs> <laughs> you're getting a, a, a dumbed down version, if you like. Mm. Uh, but essentially, what in the old days of espionage, an, an agent may not have bothered collecting. Nowadays, they're able to piece together snippets that might have been worth not the effort in collecting, but together are now able to be kind of synthesized uh, artificially to give you a picture that is collected online that gives you enormous ability to then exploit a target mm. uh, further. Uh, and that's that's what's kind of really changing the business, the intelligence business, uh, and uh, seeing the emergence of the cyber security centers, the joint cyber operations centers and, and in the state capitals and industry cottoning on to the significance of this space. Yeah. Catherine's more over this yeah. than I am. It sounds as though, yeah, like there's a greater generating of an individual's profile in the sense that before it was very much like who this person is. Mm. Now it's gone to this case, correct me if I'm wrong, how can we exploit this individual, but also how can we exploit, you know, the institutions that they are involved with and their connections, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Catherine, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think we're getting to a really interesting area. I'd add two things. One, completely agree with John that espionage is, you know, a ye olde thing and we've been doing it, um, our potential adversaries have been doing it and so it ever was and so it ever will be. But I think it's worth reflecting on two things. One, the type of information you collect. And then the second one, which we were just getting to then, how you use that information. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the type of information, I think we could all agree that kind of collecting political slash military espionage, that's that's kind of, there's a tacit gentleman's agreement around the world. That's fair game. Um, And sometimes that's not a bad thing. Sometimes you can reassure yourself about your adversaries so that there's a degree of stability obtained through spycraft. Then there's a second bucket, which is industrial espionage. So to John's earlier point, where um, states have a really cushy relationship with their industrial sector, um, really close relationship, we have seen in the last decade or so in particular, a huge push by China into the realms of, of, of industrial espionage, stealing IP to then advantage a domestic industrial base at home. Now, you might quibble and there are arguments to be had over whether that is or isn't fair game, but I think it's worth distinguishing that from the military political sphere. Then there's a third area, which I would call more targeted individual citizen um, espionage. And you could think of that, for instance, where states, and it's often the authoritarian states, monitor their diaspora communities once they've moved overseas collecting intelligence, spying on those communities um, who have often escaped oppression, escaped repressive regimes. And in my view, that type of espionage of the three categories is, is pretty much clearly clearly not on. Um, and there are, there are human rights, massive human rights implications of that. And that brings us to the second issue in play here, not just what you collect, but how you use it. So the use of information obtained via espionage to, for instance, conduct foreign interference to destabilise elections, the use of it to potentially engage in 
a coercive attack against an economy in some way, for instance, by tanking a company's share price, um, the use of it to uh, target or harass a member of a diaspora group or their family based on religion or based on, on political view. All of those, to me, are examples of things that are, that are not on, um, to use common parlance, and that we should be really careful about pushing back against. So, yes, espionage has been around forever, but I think we're seeing not just in terms of um, the scope and the scale due to data changing, but we're also seeing we're seeing uses and types of espionage. So I think it's really important for us to figure out how to push back against those or how to harden our systems to make espionage more difficult in the first place so that we don't have to um, face those um, circumstances. I would just add it's really interesting to think about how open societies struggle with this. We're really not very good at handling this because we've got, uh, we value liberties, we live civil liberties and people's own prerogatives. And in responding to the moves of authoritarian states that, that are able to operate with impunity in their own domains and are able to reach out across because of our own openness to our domains and influence individuals, as Catherine is suggesting, you know, people who are from the diaspora in Australia, from whatever country, be it somewhere from Africa or anywhere in Asia, and their diplomats come here and pressure them and then threaten their families back home. How do we respond to that? And part of that is the, the legislation on uh, foreign interference. It's reconciling the dialectic between civil liberties and, and protections is really challenging because there is a, a counter-narrative that the foreign interference legislation is actually oppressive uh, and is actually going too far and that it is detracting from our civil liberties. And there is a very fine balance to be struck. And uh, I think we will see over the coming months and years, you know, efforts to tweak the legislation are made that we will see kind of look to find that balance. I don't know that we're quite there yet. And I say that genuinely, I don't know. Uh, I think we're still at a stage of actually exploring what's working, what's not, and how well it's working and whether or not it can work better yeah. and, and whether other me measures need to be put in place to actually balance the the liberties and, and the rights and obligations. And, and here's something that ties in on the intelligence space, which is one of my hobby horses, Jack, as you know. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and that is the power of oversight. Yeah. In, a, in an open liberal democracy, oversight and accountability is fundamentally important. Mm. And part of that is because of that classic dictum, you know, which is that power corrupts. Yeah. Uh, and despite the best intentions of good people, power accrued over time tends to corrupt. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, there is an incredibly important need for accountability and audit. And one of the most important functions that is operating in that space in the intelligence domain is the IGES, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, uh, a function that is really uh, growing in significance and importance as the in national intelligence community grows, as the cyber domain grows, as its significance to national security, to the protection of us as a nation, becomes something that's not just a, something that occurs at Russell Hill mm. or in Parliament, but affects the businesses of Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Brisbane, and beyond in Perth, etc. And that's that's where I think we're not quite there yet. And it also points in my mind, in my estimation, to why I'm a supporter of things like a federal ICAC, a Federal Independent Commission Against Corruption, uh, because we actually, we are under 
challenge. We are under relentless threats. And I don't want to sound overly Manichaean about this, overly conspiratorial or dark and brooding about this. But the bottom line is that we are under significant challenge at the moment, under significant pressures. Uh, it's incredibly difficult being a politician, let alone a senior bureaucrat at the moment. There is a view that they are absolutely tapped out at the moment. And part of it is because of, of the system being worn down and, and getting back to something Catherine said earlier about perhaps being overly commercialised. Mm. Uh, and there are some things that actually re really remain the remit of government to undertake. Some really good points there. I do really want to talk about IGIS um, and all those accountability measures as well in ASIO. And then we'll jump to Catherine more about the technological side of cybersecurity, foreign experience, et cetera, et cetera. In your view, do you think, especially with ASIO, ASIS, ASD, having such a bigger role to play in the security of Australia, do you think they're doing an adequate job? Do you think there's appropriate accountability measures in place to make sure that they're doing the right job at the right time and they're not overstepping their boundaries, et cetera, et cetera? It's a bit of a broad question, I know, but go for your life. So a couple of things. One is that the people involved in this, from my observation, are overwhelmingly people of integrity. The patriots with integrity, overwhelmingly the case. Mm. But they are also under enormous pressure. These are organisations that over the last two decades have grown like topsy-turvy and there is an issue with professionalism. There is issue of people knowing their trade craft. These organisations have grown very, very quickly and the field, the dynamic change that's taken place in the field, the way you do you know, conduct operations is morphing, you know, month by month as new apps emerge, new technology emerges. The degree of difficulty of doing business has actually grown exponentially in the last two decades. And that's partly because of the increase in great power contestation, but also because of the change of technology. The fact is it's really hard to avoid detection now. Yeah. It's very hard not to be closely monitored by an adversary. Um, so the combination of factors means that We've got the need for additional need for oversight, and I really think that's important for confidence, for the people's trust. In the process the other day on the streets of Sydney, speak to a conspiratorial sort of narrative that's out there that needs to be countered by demonstrable, resolute transparency as far and as we can in the appropriate measure, in the appropriate way. And that's one of the reasons why I really believe in institutions like the IGES and the Federal ICAC. It's so important that Australians believe in their institutions mm -hmm. and they are under attack. They're under attack from a number of sources and some of them are self-generated, okay? Their own blunderers, you know. Wag would say, you know, when you suspect a conspiracy, chances are it's just a complete and utter stuff up. And in fact, I remember I had this wonderful little exchange with the Russian defence attaché when I was attaché to Myanmar. He said, John, it is all a CIA conspiracy. And I said to him, mate, you credit them with more capability than I know them to have. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think there is this inclination to see things in a conspiratorial way through a conspiratorial lens that has maybe an element of truth to it. But overwhelmingly, we're talking about people who are trying hard, who are probably maybe cutting corners occasionally, but are under incredible pressure yep. at the moment. Yeah, and like that point that we're trying to make before, this ever-expanding sort of domain that we're still trying to come to grips with ourselves. And our legislation can only accelerate so fast to keep up with this accelerating domain that we just can't keep up with. There are some already problems in that in itself, but like you said, I think the Australian people should trust, you know, these sort of accountability measures that we do have in place because they are there for a reason. Mm. 
I kind of want to shift the dialogue a little bit here and talk more about the technology behind foreign interference, cybersecurity, obviously. I think the biggest one I want to talk about is artificial intelligence. With the rise of artificial intelligence, do you think this is like a game-changing aspect of foreign interference? What do you think, Catherine? Look, I hesitate to use the term game change because we tend to get very excited about technology and, and, and think everything's game changing. But in the case of artificial intelligence, I'm going to make an exception and say, yes, I do think it's game changing. And for a couple of reasons, and we've touched on some of them. The first is the ability to collect things at scale that previously no human could have gone through and suddenly you can have and when we say artificial intelligence I don't mean kind of like a super smart robot what I mean is basically advanced machine learning which is basically really good statistical analysis in ways that we never could do it before and so now you've got vast swathes of data and often lots and lots of different data sets that can be combined and machine learning can crawl through that and draw out insights that previously would have been invisible and they can find the needle in the haystack that no human would have. What we also see with the proliferation of kind of sensing technologies and the digitalization and the datafication of everything is that we're collecting information, we're creating records that previously would never have been recorded. So previously, when I walked um, from my home to buy a loaf of bread and some milk, no one was paying attention or recording that journey. Um, and no one was paying attention to things like my gait as I walked to the store. That was lost to history. Now that type of information is being collected. When I watch a TikTok video, although I don't because I don't have the app TikTok TikTok because I'm a Neanderthal, <laughs> um, but if I was to watch a TikTok video, what would be being collected about me is things that never would have been collected in the past. Um, how long my attention is held by different video clips, um, inferences about the types of colours that I like most based on the the videos that I choose to spend more time on, inferences about um, what type of dance moves make me happiest. Again, stuff that never was collected before but now potentially exists in a database and can be combined with a whole range of other things about me. So obviously that is a bit of a game changer. How that affects things is it makes more people caught up in this game, as we alluded to before. Every citizen is a potential target of foreign interference or of some type of nefarious cyber activity. It makes targeting easier because computers are starting to know us better than we know ourselves. It means that sometimes interference or, or malign influence can be conducted on autopilot. Machines are getting better aided by artificial intelligence at things like natural language processing. They can start to engage and speak with us like a human does. Artificial intelligence is helping machines to get also get better at things like voice impersonation, even you know deep fakes that let computers mimic uh, voices, mimic audiovisual uh, material, all of those things mean that interference and malign influence can be conducted potentially without a human in the loop. So increasing the scale while at the same time the targeting becomes more specific and better. The last thing is that the whole kind of thing of artificial intelligence is that it takes advantage of feedback loops right? You feed a bunch of data to an AI agent, it comes up with a solution, it puts out an output, and then generally a human goes, yep, that's good, keep going AI, and it gives that feedback and it keeps going, oh, oh, that's not very good, try again. So it's feedback loops 
really quickly at scale. And that's how these things get really good at the processes that they do. Previously, when we did foreign interference, it was very much a bit of a, a bit of a guess work, right? You would say, oh, I think if I do this over here in a society, it will have this effect over here, hopefully, right? But now it's possible to actually get real-time feedback loops of um, attempts at influence and interference online. You can see in real time how people are affected by particular campaigns. You can see in real time potentially what actions or decisions they take um, as a result of your influence or interference campaign. So these are the types of feedback loops that make the foreign interference or the malign influence, depending on where we are definitionally, makes it more effective, more potent, and also means that actors are potentially more likely to use these tools because they can convince themselves that they're more valuable. If you're pitching to your boss, if you're sitting somewhere, I don't know, in the GRU in Russia, if you're pitching to your boss and saying, hey, why don't we try doing this particular nefarious piece of influence? Now you can say, and I can show you the value of that. It's not just a stab in the dark. I can show you how I'm affecting people in real time. And that, I think, will not only increase efficiency, effectiveness and potency of foreign interference and foreign influence, but also its frequency. On that basis of um, feedback loops and getting real-time data as to the effects of using this artificial intelligence, will it get to a stage or is it at a stage where you can use those feedback loops, that, that, that machine learning to create calculated assumptions as to what different effects you can create as a result of your own actions? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the ultimate end state, isn't it? And we know one thing about bureaucracies and ultimately spies are bureaucrats to some extent. They like to quantify things. They like to know how much it's going to cost and they like to know how effective it is. Um, So absolutely being able to understand and measure effects, I think, is something that foreign actors and indeed domestic actors, although they tend not to, to engage in the more egregious examples of, of interference and, in, and influence we're talking about, but absolutely that's appealing. I want to talk more on a similar sort of vein. I want to talk about misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. And I think it's good over the, over the last uh, 47 minutes, we've managed to discuss you know, different terms and give context to these sort of topics. And I want to be able to talk about these sort of definitions for these three terms. Misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. How would you define them? Let me jump in because as I think we've established, I love nothing more than a good definition. <laughs> um, so firstly, it's, 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 it's important to point out that this is definitionally contested terrain. Different companies use different definitions to refer to the same thing. Different governments do. For the Australian government, if you pop along to, I think it's about page 45, but don't quote me, of the Cyber and Critical Technology Engagement Strategy that DFAT put out a few months ago, they have a great definition of misinformation, disinformation, and foreign interference and the, and the differences between them. In essence, misinformation is information that is false or partly false that is spread unwittingly, so without an intent to cause harm. The classic example is an influencer on Instagram sharing some shonky stuff about, say, vaccines, right? They're not intending to cause national security harm or, or to even harm another individual. They're just distributing false or partly false information. Disinformation is false or partly false information, which is spread with an intent to cause 
harm, to cause harm to Australia's national interests, our economic prosperity or social cohesion, or indeed harm to a particular individual. Malinformation is a topic which Australia hasn't necessarily picked up in its official policy definitions, but I think it's a really useful category. Um, that's the spread of true information in a way intended to harm someone. So a classic example of that would be the hacking and leaking of Hillary Clinton's emails. Those emails were true, but they were uh, obtained in an unauthorised fashion and then leaked in order to have a political impact on the US election campaign. Taking it down to a personal blackmail level, you could imagine someone accessing photos on someone's phone in an unauthorised manner and then threatening to or actually leaking them in order to have a strategic or a political effect or to blackmail someone. So malinformation points out that sometimes in this game of influence and information, the bad guy doesn't even need to use or create false information. They just put true information out um, to the wrong people in an unauthorised way at a time that causes influence. Right. John, what do you reckon? I think Catherine's covered it fantastically <laughs> there, so I don't know that I've got much to add, to be honest. But I, I love uh, the illustration of Hillary Clinton emails is, I think, com particularly compelling about yeah. malinformation. Agreed. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, especially over the last couple of sort of like years, you can start seeing um, different examples um, of misinformation, disinformation. This does get to the issue of privacy, though, yep. you know, and protection of people's information. And it's it's very hard to protect people's information nowadays. I mean, we here at the ANU, we've had how many cyber attacks now? I don't know. I'm not. I haven't kept track. But we've been under. Parliament's been under attack. Yep. Major corporations are under attack routinely. We kind of have to operate almost on the assumption that we have very little that's private anymore. Yep. You yeah, know, and we're really at the at the mercies of some a particular blackmailer wanting to use or ex, 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 extortionate, uh, yeah. in ex, use extortion against us, and hope that the mechanisms in place for governance and civil society are robust enough to check those powers. Uh, but you know that's becoming increasingly contested. I don't know about you guys, but I've gone through several credit cards because there's been some hack. On my on my credit, mm. some company and you know I've literally had to go through several credit cards to mm. replace, replace, replace because it's been hacked. Somebody's yep. got the number and used it. The banks must be suffering, you know, enormous impacts, which I think a lot of them are not all that keen to publicly talk about mm. that much because it's not good for their credibility yep. and their credit worthiness if they're if they were to expose just how vulnerable they are to cyber attack and yep. how often that happens. But if that's happening just with credit cards, which is a pretty common, you know, device, everybody's got one, uh, what's it, what's happening in terms of other issues and perhaps in terms of national security yep. that we're not aware of? It's almost as like it's touching bases on every single facet of society almost. Mm. In one way or another, it's still affecting each individual within a society. Mm. And it's something that needs to be addressed, already being addressed, but in a more cohesive manner to the, be able to keep up with, like we were mentioning before, mm. this accelerating pace that this whole security domain is sort of we're seeing at the moment. I want to talk about also some attribution as well. Australia's beforehand, I would argue, not exactly overtly fond of attribution, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It seems now more or less that they're being a bit more hawkish about calling out and naming and shaming state-backed foreign interference, non-state-backed foreign interference. Is this the approach that we're seeing at the moment? Are we seeing this change between 
kind of letting back and being like, we've been hacked, but we're not going to name who it is to now being more or less, this is exactly who it is. Uh, Australia has, since 2017, has publicly attributed a cyber incident to a foreign power on 10 occasions. And the last most recent one was just last week um, when Australia joined a multi-nation coalition in attributing um, a massive hack of Microsoft Exchange to China. Now, I think if you look at those 10 times where we've attributed wrongdoing in cyberspace, we've only done it twice to China, which is of note. We've generally focused on the more known cyber rogues, Iran, Russia, and North Korea. But when we do that, it's generally in a coalition. So we generally do it with our Five Eyes partners or in the most recent case um, with an unprecedented uh, band of brothers of Japan, the EU uh, and NATO, which is quite, um, that tells you that a lot of people are losing patience with China's cyber aggression. But we tend not to stick our head above the parapet when it's just us that is targeted. So you could think, for instance, about um, the hack of ANU, which John mentioned. Now, our um, officials have said that they know with above 90% confidence who it was, but they won't publicly say who it was. And I suspect that's for a couple of reasons, um, and we can go into them if you like, but one of the, the key ones is that that would just be Australia in that instance. There are not, obviously. There weren't a range of countries affected, unlike something like Microsoft Exchange, where there were hundreds of thousands of organisations around the world affected. Why do we attribute these attacks in a coalition, but not necessarily by ourselves? What are the ramifications if we do go down that uh, path of attribution? Let me turn the question around and say, what's the purpose of attribution? Mm. What are you hoping to achieve? And obviously, as a country, you shouldn't necessarily do something unless you hope to gain something by it. So what do you hope to gain by attributing activities? And there are a range of things you could hope to gain. One would be to kind of call a country out, name and shame, and hope they change their behaviour. Another perhaps is to message in some way to your own population and say, hey, we've got our ducks in a row and, and we're, we're quite smart and we figured this out and you should trust us. So why do you want to attribute? And I think if you think about that question, you might be able to form a little bit of a rubric um, in your mind about when Australia does and doesn't attribute because it's no point attributing or, or perhaps in the view of, of some Australian officials, there's not much point attributing if you're not going to gain anything by that. And then on the flip side, of course, there's the risks of attribution. If the country that you want to call out is one where you have a pretty fraught economic and trade and diplomatic relationship, maybe you calculate that it's not in your interests and it's too risky to, to put your head above the parapet and, and call out, particularly if you're doing it by your, yourself and not with the cover of a lot of people around you. Let's look into the future right now and for the future as well. Does Australia have the capabilities to deal with the threat of foreign interference? Yes or no? I love it when we reduce a very complex question to a yes or no. <laughs> Let me put it this way. I'll, again, I'll turn your question around and break it down and say, well, what do you mean by Australia? Because I think there's a tendency to think that the, the sole responsibility for these issues rests with government or rests indeed with um, intelligence agencies. I would say that's not right. There's a whole range of actors who've got a role to play here, particularly for foreign interference, right? So this is not just a government issue, although government clearly has a role. There's a role for politicians, for political parties, for ministers. 
um, there's a role for universities, for the private sector, for individuals about what products and services they choose to use and, and how they choose to engage in the online digital world. So do we have the capability? I think we do. I actually think that there is there is a huge amount to be said for the ability of Australia to be resilient to this type of activity. Even if you just take as a case study the fact that the Australian government acted to impose our foreign interference laws a couple of years ago off the back of investigative journalism conducted um, primarily by the ABC. Now, that tells you something about the antibodies of democracy mm. um, pushing back against foreign interference. Um, and that's something where civil society pushed government to act, not the other way around. I would just add that what we've seen emerge in the last few years is a reflecting what Catherine said and, you know, what the Four Corners shows and the ABC has done is a much greater awareness of what's at stake and what's going on. Uh, once upon a time, business was not interested in this and this, the Chief Information Security Officer function was a, a perfunctory one. It's now it's now fundamentally important and critically placed in bureaucratic infrastructure, if you like. Mm. And the way that's manifested in the government level is the growth of the Australian Signals Directorate as a as a statutory authority and the emergence of the Australian Cybersecurity Centre as a major part of that with its uh, regional uh, cybersecurity operations centres that are engaging state uh, authorities, local industry and the community raising awareness to a level that, you know, a few years ago was unimaginable. Mm. So we are now as a society becoming more aware and in becoming more aware are becoming more resilient as well. What are risks associated with foreign interference? Again, cybersecurity as well, be as broad as you want, that the government at the moment aren't looking at or aren't focusing on at the moment that you think are more or less pressing? I think you could look at this a couple of ways. I think... Ultimately, the purpose of protecting against foreign interference is about two things. One, it's about preserving our sovereignty, our ability as a nation to make decisions on our own terms in accordance with our own system of democracy. Um, and the second overarching purpose is actually about the protection of individuals, as we've touched on. It's about protecting civil liberties and human rights, particularly where foreign governments overreach into Australian society. Now, where are we now with where the government's at and, and where are we looking in terms of future risks where we might not be protecting either of those two interests? I think the real challenge is going to be in this difference, as I alluded to at the beginning, between interference, which is a really narrow set of offences of corrupting, clandestine, kind of coercive behaviours, stuff that really would be illegal um, no matter where it happened in the economy or society, versus influence that is malign that we don't like. So your disinformation and your misinformation campaigns spearheaded by foreign states, often they're not necessarily foreign interference, but they're certainly things that we don't like and that we think damage our sovereignty and our ability to have democratic decision-making and sometimes target uh, those kind of citizens when we should be protecting them. Getting that balance right, I think, will be key, but making sure we focus both on interference but on malign influence, I think is going to be the, the next frontier of this challenge. I would just add that with the rise of the cyber challenge and the, the foreign interference challenge and great power contestational challenge, the need for 
more effective, trusted governance is more important than ever. It's, I think, fundamentally important that we get away from the hollow men view of government. It sounds like a, a you know a bit of a joke, but it's actually a fundamental problem, and it manifested itself on the streets of Sydney mm. uh, the other day with people who don't believe. They just don't believe the system. They think that there is a conspiracy. They see they see corruption. They see nepotism. They see a cynical governance in their view that if if we want our system to work, and, and let's just be honest here, mm. right at the moment, our system of a federation is in the most fragile state it's been in in living history. If we want to preserve our federation, if we want to preserve our way of life, we need to hold ourselves to the highest standards possible. And that means we need accountability mechanisms to help foster that level of professionalism and integrity. And that's why we touched on before the idea of the IGES, expanding mm. these powers of the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. But more importantly, I think an, a federal ICAC-type function, an independent commission against corruption that has a broad remit to ensure that the Australian people can have confidence in their system of governance and discourage over the long term a cynical exploitation of power by those who wield it. It's really important. And so if anything good comes out of this attack on our system, maybe that's it. Mm. Uh, I'm really hoping that we as a nation will have an aha moment, that the scales will come off our eyes, that we'll realise the gravity of the circumstances we face and that our leaders will lead, that they will rise to the occasion. Our state and federal leaders and our industry leaders, our economic leaders, we as a nation will rise to the occasion lest the opposite happens. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today. I uh, really appreciate all your insights. Thanks very much, Jack. Thanks, Jack. That is all we have time for here today on the ACSS podcast. Join us next time as we'll further discuss the other key security themes of the summit, the regional setting of Asia-Pacific security and the non-traditional setting of space security. Bye for now.